0: you. So here I have Dr. Manisha Sinha. She is the Draper Chair of History at the University of Connecticut. She also was the 2022 awardee of the Guggenheim Memorial Fellowship. How are you today, Dr. Sinha?
1: I'm good. Thank you for having me.
0: Last year, we... Literally had our conversation on the day that Kyle Rittenhouse was let off for the murders that he carried out in Wisconsin. And it was very disturbing to see that, yet again, a modern day lynching was essentially being excused. And the kind of rhetoric that was used around it, especially by people like Tucker Carlson was that Mm -hmm. this gentleman had a gun. They're lawfully allowed to have these weapons. In Heller versus District of Columbia, even Antonin Scalia states that people do not have a right to any weapon, but they do in that case have a right to a handgun. And so, that has really been expanded upon and housed on and exploited by Republicans across the country since that ruling to expand the ownership of weapons to really any weapon possible. And so, in places like Texas, you have the illegality of certain substances like LSD, uh, you know, marijuana, anything along those lines, which I would classify under freedom of expression and freedom of thought. And also, they have restrictions on things like being able to terminate a pregnancy, but they virtually have no restrictions, even over the objections of their own police force when it comes to permits for weapons. I really kept thinking, especially as Waukesha occurred last year, that the country is sort of in a, a tailspin. Not necessarily downward, though I think that is the general feeling. But I think it's it, it's more of sort of yin and yang chasing one another. when. You have in a society embedded within it this idea that weapons are an acceptable means of communication, an acceptable means of defending oneself. I'll put it that way. Once they're a part of culture, you enter in a part of politics where talking really is no longer an option. When people are getting desperate, and how we discussed last time, the structure of the U.S. government is to protect the, as James Madison would put it, the minority of the opulent against the majority, when it's structured around the minority and it keeping power, and there being such a radical minority in the United States, based around this jingoism, and also when it comes to weapons, and you also tie in the great replacement theory, which is this theory that somehow Western elites are looking to replace white people with immigrants and black people and others. And you hear it all the time on Tucker Carlson and other shows. And of course, the reason why I mention Tucker is because he has the most popular show on cable period in that time slot. Certainly the most popular quote unquote news show in that time slot. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on Given the reactionary nature of the court, of the Supreme Court in particular, but also given the amount of mass shootings that we see taking place after the COVID lockdowns stopped, and we have this continuing rise in racism and vitriol, what role do you think that weapons have in sort of hemming in the left, in particular in light of January 6th, whereby people like AOC, we didn't hear from her for almost a day or so. And and they specifically went looking for Chuck Schumer, AOC, and Nancy Pelosi went to their offices first. What do you see as the role of weapons in hemming in people of color and the expansion of democracy?
1: Yeah, that's a big question. You know, I think the right today, and by the right, I mean, like, really the fringe armed minority, but also the kinds of people you mentioned, you know, who peddle disinformation on a daily basis uh, on Fox News and other right-wing channels like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and Laura Inagram and all of them. I think the problem is that they have weaponized literally and figuratively certain ideas to appeal to their base and that they traffic in both historical disinformation and political disinformation for now. So, for instance, this notion that somehow they have the right to bear arms and that that is completely unlimited, which is now being agreed to by a very right wing. Supreme Court today is absolutely wrong. All constitutional historians, lawyers will clearly tell you that the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution uh, came about because in the early days of the Republic, we did not have a standing army. So for the defense of the nation, you needed to be able to call out all armed adult men to defend the country, and that this right was to be regulated, as the Second Amendment clearly says, by the government. And indeed, the right to bear arms has been regulated by the government. Today, we don't need an armed adult majority because we have a standing army, a professional army. So it's it's really ahistorical the way they have weaponized the United States Constitution, Uh, Even Madison, who was a firm believer, as you mentioned, in protections for the rights of minorities, said that that could never overturn majority rule, that majority rule is the essential principle of representative government. And he made this clear to Southern secessionists who wanted to secede or even nullify federal laws. He made it clear to them before he died. You know, as the father of the Constitution, he says, I never imagined minority rule. What I did say is that we should have protections for minorities and that we should always, in fact, uphold majority rule. So on the one hand, people on the right have really trafficked in all kinds of disinformation in order to enact their violent politics. And you're right. The people who are most violent today are these fringe right-wing neo-Nazi neo-Confederate uh, groups uh, that are in love with their guns uh, and are extremely violent and and some of them act on these kind of racist and misogynist views that are being peddled by people like Tucker Carlson and company on Fox News you mentioned uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was the guy who got away with murder literally And who now whines about having a bad reputation, you know, what he did was absolutely wrong. His lawyers put up a defense on that he was defending himself. In fact, he invaded a community, came armed and came with ill intent and ended up murdering people. And the people who responded to him were trying to defend themselves. So I think it is is—it is really a travesty of justice that he walks free today after doing that and that other people might be tempted to emulate him. The left usually in this country, when they protest, tend to have the kinds of protests that was galvanized by the Movement for Black Lives after the blatant murder of George Floyd. They tend to protest. And a lot of people on the right, including Trump, try to equate both sides. You know, they're good people on both sides or try to equate protests, peaceful protests by people protesting a particular injustice, which they have a perfect right to do under the Bill of Rights. We have the freedom of speech and press and assembly to equate that with this kind of right wing Violent invasions like we saw in Charlottesville that resulted, you know, in the death of Heather Hare, progressive woman who was out there uh, protesting these awful monuments to white supremacy, which is what the Confederate statues are all about. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really. This kind of both-sidism that people on the right do that completely muddies the issues. And they do it purposely because they have perfected Goebbels-level propaganda and misinformation and lying. And often they project onto the left what they are trying to do, which is, in fact, to, to overthrow the republic, to give oxygen to, to these right-wing armed crazy lunatics, to dress that up in some sort of constitutional legitimacy. Now we have really unhinged right-wing lawyers in the Supreme Court, right? The people who were deemed unfit to be even appointed to the Supreme Court who are there and who also peddle in a level of misinformation, maybe not as bad as Tucker Carlson. But if you read Samuel Alito's opinions, you would think we are back in the Middle Ages because that's where he gets his legal jurisprudence from, not even from our constitution and our constitutionally protected rights. So, yes, there's a lot of this going on, and I think it is discernible pattern to actually weaponize resentment, racial resentment, weaponize misogyny, weaponize nativism. And that's their path to power, and, and they're doing it by sowing divisions, whether it's racial or based on gender or any other argument that they can think of. And what's shocking is that in order to do this, they are unearthing some of the worst scientific racist, social Darwinist authoritarians from the early 20th century. We thought that those kinds of people had been defeated with the fall of Nazism and fascism and the Second World War. But now we see the global rise of authoritarianism. And a lot of these people are connected to that global trend. These are the people who are saying, You know, we are with Putin's Russia rather than the United States of America. So there are no patriots. And in fact, if they do have antecedents in American history, it is Southern slaveholders who committed and attempted to destroy the republic rather than accept the results of a presidential, a democratic presidential election. That also sounds somewhat familiar today.
0: It really does. And and I think that really branches well into... This next bit, which is the call by Rick Santorum in particular a few months ago at ALEC, which is essentially a corporate board whereby they come up with, they claim to be nonpartisan, but they come up with generally right-wing anti-labor legislation. And as of late, they've come up with a lot of anti-democratic legislation. And he states in his speech, he says, you take this grenade and you pull the pin, you've got a live piece of ammo in your hands. He said, if 34 states, if every Republican legislator votes for this, we have a constitutional convention. Now, a few years ago, when it came to Barack Obama's administration, they very nearly didn't have enough states to be able to pass constitutional amendments absent the president, given their continued minority rule. So, in the case of 2000, right? George W. Mm -hmm. Bush did not win the majority Mm -hmm. of the votes in the country and he did not win the Electoral College. Lawyers like Brett Kavanaugh who were rewarded decades later by Donald Trump with a Supreme Court appointment for being a loyal soldier and getting Republicans into power, they argued to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court listened because of the majority that Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush were able to appoint. They gave the presidency to George W. Bush. And then also in 2016, they lost the popular vote by a mile and won the electoral college. It -hmm. seems that the minority view of the United States continues to be put front and center within government and the terrors that the George W. Bush administration implemented the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War, the spying apparatus within the NSA and CIA, FBI, and then on top of that, the reactionary tax cuts that he implemented. Many bad things happened just within the first term, almost nearly exclusively happened within the first term of the George W. Bush administration. And then you get Donald Trump, who comes in and essentially tries to, as Steve Bannon states, dismantle the administrative state and the ability for the state to be able to, in the federal government and the executive branch, to be able to regulate the country, to be able to have dominion and have power to go about structuring the nation in such a way that doesn't allow for private organizations, namely and mainly corporations, to shape All of public life, which is exactly what they want. They see corporations and private organizations as the apex of liberty and freedom. I would posit Mm -hmm. that they are the antithesis of liberty and freedom because of their top down authoritarian organizations based on nothing more than money. This move by what is a minority of the country, and we often note this when it comes to the Senate, right? The people who represent 50 Senate seats in the case of Democrats, represent some 30 million more people, if not more than Republicans do. And so, Republicans have a majority of the states, yes, but they do not have a majority of the population of the United States. And they are looking to pass a constitutional convention, not only enforcing the electoral college, but on top of that, they want to go about increasing House and Senate to three and nine years for the terms of congressional members. They're also looking to lower the rate or at the very least lower the threshold for passing constitutional amendments. And they also want to make Mm -hmm. the Congress and the Senate in particular far more powerful. I think Mm -hmm. this is really aimed at pushing back on the project of democracy. And it seems that the slaveholders decided not to go in this direction. They decided not to push for a constitutional convention because they thought, knew that they would lose. At that time, they were a minority of the states and a minority of the population of the country, but they chose not to go that route. They chose to do civil war. Now their descendants are looking to, use a constitutional convention to essentially destroy the American republic. They're looking to completely rewrite the American constitution without the need of any popular vote. They're just looking to do it through a state-based constitutional convention which has never been done before and the last time that it was done in the United States was under the Articles of Confederation and it was meant to amend it but as Lee Carter pointed out to me, instead of amending the Articles of Confederation, they just threw it out entirely. What kind of danger mm-hmm. are we looking at by Republicans when it comes to a constitutional convention in the United States and exactly what they could do?
1: Well, it's somewhat ironic that they are even, or you know, people like Rick Santorum and his little group are even thinking of a constitutional convention and amendments and to change the constitution drastically when uh, they claim to venerate the original constitution and they claim to have superpowers that allows them special access into the original intent of the founding fathers in the 18th century. Most historians and constitutional theorists and lawyers, at least those who are not completely identified with the right, like Jonathan Turley, have completely uh disregarded those ideas, right? They, they think it's, it's ahistorical and it, it is based on a very thin understanding of both history and the U.S. Constitution. You know, it is a high bar to amend the U.S. Constitution. You need two-thirds of both the houses of Congress and three-fourths of the states so I doubt that they will, in fact, be, ever be able to, to wing that. What you do see them, and here you hit the nail on the head, is employ a whole series of anti-democratic measures in order to dilute or to work directly against a democracy, right? Uh, we know that they have been trying for the longest time and have succeeded in suppressing voters and have passed a slew of voter suppression laws because they don't want people to vote, right? They want to stay in power. And much of what they stand for, they know, is highly unpopular. So they create these false flag political and cultural issues in order to to appeal to people's worst instincts and to get votes. So it's it's a multi-pronged strategy, anti-democratic strategy, based on voter suppression. Which again, thanks to Supreme Court, they completely whittle down the Voting Rights Act of 1965 in in Shelby versus Holder, which has given the green light to to red states to pass a slew of voter suppression laws. Mississippi recently upheld an 1890. Voting law that disfranchised black men and was clearly based on, you know, Jim Crow ideas of how our country should work, right? So this is the extent to which they are willing to go. Besides that, the, the acute partisan gerrymandering, which is nowhere in the constitution, is something that they have done also. Anything to weaken the vote, anything to weaken the voice and the will of the people. Now, there are certain sort of very complicated systems that our original constitution put into place to form representative government, right? And we have come a long way from that. So, for instance, the Senate, which is a rather, you know, it's it's like a rotten burrow from the English old English parliamentarian system because it gives more power to a handful of people in thinly populated states to well-populated states compared to well-populated states like California or New York. I mean, Washington, D.C., Doesn't have statehood, but it has more people than many of these far western states. So the Senate already is giving land rather than people representation. And you know, did the founding fathers initially visualize that when you just had 13 states and where the notion of giving equal equal representation to states is very different? Uh, It's 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 very uh, highly unlikely, right? So this notion that we should stick by the system is 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 also a historical. Um, I would say that, you know, we have changed a lot of things. We made elections to the Senate of senators, direct elections. That was a progressive era constitutional amendment rather than have state legislatures choose their senators, right? The other thing that is badly in need of reform, of course, is our process of electing a president. In fact, that process was so badly written in the Constitution that with Jefferson's election, they had to pass a constitutional amendment that made clear who would be a president and who would be vice president. They've had to clarify that. And there have been numerous proposals to get rid of the Electoral College because it's such an arcane system. And there have been times where we have nearly succeeded in doing that during Reconstruction. There were numerous proposals to make elections of the president direct. Even Andrew Jackson, you know, the great champion of the white man's democracy, wanted elections of the president to be direct and to completely get rid of the electoral college so that you would not have bad faith actors, either at the state or national level, who would be able to overturn the elections, which is exactly what Trump And his minions tried before (laughs) January 6th, right? They tried to pressure and influence state electoral officials. They tried to pressure and influence Mike Pence to overturn the election as if he could single-handedly do that. Um, You know, that even somebody who is as spineless as Mike Pence refused to do that. You know, so it's it's really important for us to know that the process of electing a president in the United States is very convoluted. And nothing is written in stone because, you know, we've changed so much, even in terms of our electorate. You know, we began with only proper men can vote, right? During the Jacksonian era, mostly, not only, but mostly adult white men voted. And by Reconstruction, Black men got the right to vote. And finally, women got the right to vote. And in the 1960s, we overthrew racial apartheid in the South that disfranchised all Black people. So we've come a long way in terms of the progress of democracy. But there's nothing inevitable about this, as you can plainly see you know, that we have constantly had to have a huge struggle, a huge contestation. I mean, with the Civil War, with more Americans dying than all Americans' casualties in all wars subsequently, including the First, Second World War, Vietnam War, the Korean War. So, it's really important for us to remember that these were the results of huge struggles, political struggles, and and that is something that we need to continue uh, doing today. Um, You mentioned the Powers of, of corporations. And, you know, I liken it to what the slaveholders had before the Civil War yeah. with the Three Fifths Clause. They had all this added representation in the federal government, in the Supreme Court, in Congress, dominating the presidency. You know, the corporations have that with all these awful, again, decisions by the Supreme Court, like Citizens United, uh, that allows dark money to flow into electoral campaigns. And it's a real struggle. You will find Democrats are constantly trying to raise money because you have these uh, millionaires like billionaires, like Peter Thiel, who is a total fascist and who actually funds right wing candidates and authoritarianism in this country at all levels. You have a lot of bad actors, bad corporate actors like that. The rest go along because they just don't want to pay taxes and they don't want to be regulated, and they don't want to give their workers a living wage for all kinds of reasons. So you do have, I think, a struggle today between big business, Wall Street, corporations, and democracy. The only people, the only entity that can rein in these huge multinational corporations is the federal government. That's the only place where we can have citizens' rights, protected labor protected, consumers protected. We've learned that since the age of you know, the Gilded Age, the era of rapacious capitalism. Now people say we are in a second Gilded Age where corporations want to act. Uh, and, you know, also, you know, these uh, our new robber barons like Elon Musk and, and Jeff Bezos, all these people who, who feel they're entitled, right, to billions while, you know, the common good suffers. And I think it's really important important for us today to understand that these people are basically acting according to their short-term class interests. They are not interested in the long-term viability of American democracy or even something that government is there for, which is to to raise the standard of living of all its citizens, right? Um, right. You know, they they have a bit of a free-for-all here. Now, it is being reversed now, but our, our hold on power is years. And I think it's really important for the left to understand that. Many times we are very critical of our own moderate allies uh, and not seeing the real enemy, which is, in fact, a weaponized, right-wing, completely fascist party, which is the Republican Party today, which seems to be completely beholden to upholding one man and his craziness, and to encouraging racist divisions, encouraging all kinds of cruelty towards minorities, towards immigrants, towards others. So they don't even make the pretense anymore. It's no longer dog whistles. It's all open. The Republican Party has not won the popular vote for the presidency for the longest time, right? they haven't since since reagan probably the second election of george w bush maybe yes after the bump from 911 but they haven't won the popular vote and so they they really now openly want to challenge Democracy, they want to challenge elections, the very mainstream kind of rights and processes that we took for granted. And I really think it's important for people on the left to really get together with all right minded people and make sure that they are never trusted with political power. And it's difficult to do that with all the voter suppression, the gerrymandering, and with corporate interests mostly arrayed against the Democrats, mainly because they're just looking at the at the bottom line all the time and that's it. You know, so it's 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 really important for the vast majority of American citizens to kind of get together. And it's the only way to to prevent these people from completely ruining the country. Making us completely go back in terms of all these hard fought for rights that we have won in the late 20th century.
0: Absolutely, and I'm gonna push back kind of gently on that, on that notion of of fighting back against some of the more moderate is what we'd call them Democrats. I would call them corrupt or right-wing Democrats, especially in the case of people like Joe Manchin in the Senate, even though you did state, and I think, and I would agree with that 100% about the Senate is sort of this old corporeal leftover corpse Mm -hmm. that is Mm -hmm. a part of our functioning government as a result of our inheritance of the United Kingdom parliamentary system in its form over there as the House of Lords, which has largely been curtailed. But mm-hmm. I, I I wanted to sort of I wanted to sort of dissect that a little bit because you also stated that there were many pushes by Republicans, in particular radical Republicans, after the Civil War during Reconstruction, to expand the power of the popular vote and to directly elect presidents. And even at that time, the passage of something like the 17th Amendment when it comes to the direct election of senators hadn't quite been able to pass the the threshold as of yet for viability for the political class in the United States. but. And I also wanted to tie in a bit about your statement about corporations sort of going along to get along for their liberties when it comes to advertising, when it comes to being able to make as much money as they want and being able to hold on to it as much as they want. I would say, especially in particular, since the Roosevelt administration and their pushback and push to repeal the New Deal, it has been a very long project on the behalf of particularly heads of corporations and corporations themselves in the form of the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is what I was referring to earlier, where Rick Santorum was speaking about the Constitutional Convention. It's this pushback against social democratic society. It's this pushback against any need to care about those in society who are producing for capital, even those and especially those who are not Producing for capital, who are not making a return on investment. And I think someone that we're both familiar with, which is Dr. Anthony Michael Chris, he mm-hmm. has often referenced the 1868 South Carolina legislature and how it was majority black. Its constitution had been rewritten in such a way that it was far more democratic. And in many ways had become a model for Mm -hmm. reconstruction politics, but how it was fought back against so hard by Northern capitalists who simply at that point weren't looking, or at least were no longer looking to defeat a countervailing force to them, or at least an economic competitor in the form of slavery, because they were ready to overcome that. They were very much so hemmed in by the Northern capitalists, this democratic revolution in the form of radical Republicans, 13th, 14th, and 15th amendment, along with a lot of the progressive economic laws they were looking to put into place when it comes to free labor. You see in the court system within the 1870s, 1880s, essentially the 14th and 15th, particularly the 14th amendment isn't really for people, it's for corporations. And so, I am curious to your analysis or at least your opinion on what would you see as an effective pushback to defeating those corporate forces in the form of people like, not just Republicans, which are so obvious and so brazen in their corruption and in their inspiration for their ideals, but People like Joe Manchin, who said out loud, you know, if John Thune was the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, I'd be a Republican. And Kirsten Sinema, who just on a regular basis refuses to do anything that would even be nominally called progressive or even anything that's just in the Biden agenda, things like Build Back Better. What would your opinion be to push back on that corporate force, on those corporate forces within the Democratic and Republican Party, seeing how... Seeing how long their legacy is and how deeply entrenched they are in our past and our politics.
1: Yeah, so I would actually agree with you when it comes to describing somebody like Joe Manchin or Kristen Sinema, who are Democrats. Uh, uh, for what reason <laughs> you don't know? Manchin represents a deeply red state, yet he's still a Democrat. But I will give Manchin his due in in terms of you know he. He whittled down some of the provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act because he represents the fossil fuel industry, because he comes from a deep red state. You wonder why he's a Democrat and not a Republican. But in a way, it's at least we have uh, the committee offices, etc., cetera, to the fact that he's a Democrat, right? We can't. We have such a thin majority in the Senate that we even need the mansions and the cinemas. But Mansion has a certain politics. He negotiated and finally got his way a little bit, and finally the act was passed. Cinema, I have no respect for. I have no idea what she stands for, except for performative <laughs> politics. Right? She seems to think politics is one big performance, and she tries to hide it in the garb of being nonpartisan, etc. I find her actually pretty unbearable after she did her dramatic thumbs down on the minimum wage. I don't know what she's clearly beholden to big corporate interests. She agreed to this act only when she made sure that a provision taxing hedge fund capitalists was taken out. So obviously, she's been paid for and bought by corporate interests. I don't think she has any politics. Imagine at least you know what he stands for, because... He has represented fossil fuel industries all his life. But the fact that he came and he bargained and he finally assented was, was important. I think at this point, we really do have to increase the Democratic majority in the Senate yeah. because we cannot be beholden to these two outliers, which they're not moderate Democrats. They are outliers, literally. Moderate Democrats are people like Chuck Schumer. You know, the right. progressive wing are uh, people like AOC, etc. These two are, you know, they are um, <laughs> a rule unto themselves. With Manchin, you know, I don't like what he stands for, but I can respect the fact that he has at least some politics. But with cinema, frankly, you know, it's anyone's guess what that woman stands for. Um, you know, I, I in terms of comparison with the past, you mentioned the South Carolina Reconstruction Government of 1868, which was a black majority government and you're right they had a very progressive constitution South Carolina came closest to having to looking at even land redistribution for former slaves so it was you know not just politically progressive but even on economic terms they did not actually do the redistribution but it came closest to it in forming a land commission to actually explore this possibility but I think it's also important to remember that northern capitalists at that time, people who were involved in manufacturing, shipping, etc., were really never anti-slavery. There's a myth that somehow northern capitalists saw southern slavery as a threat. No, a lot of the cash crops that was grown by enslaved labor fed into northern industry, in fact, global industry, including textile mills in England and New England, right? So there was never a competition between them. They had complementary economic interests, and they tended to be the most conservative and pro-slavery elements in Northern society. So Northern business was never at the forefront in the fight against slavery before the Civil War. It's only with the war that they are being used to prosecute the Union war effort, right? And then everyone comes together. But they quickly renege because, as you mentioned, during Reconstruction, their only interest is to get the plantation economy of the South humming again. They want those profits again that they had access to before the war. So they are not that interested in Black rights. Or interracial democracy in southern state governments, they are interested in having the planters back in charge so that they again have access to profits from the southern economies. So you're right, they have play a bad faith role. A lot of them oppose Reconstruction, they support a faction within the Republican Party called the Liberal Republicans, which puts Grant in his second term pretty much on the defensive, besides all the corruption scandals. So, Northern capitalists really work actively, I think, to move the Republican Party away from being the party of Lincoln, anti-slavery, black rights, to the party of big business. And of course, the Democratic Party at that time is the party of, of Southern white supremacy. So, what happens during the Jim Crow era, you know, by the late, you know, 1890s, I'm writing a book on this called The Rise and Fall of the Second American Republic, which will be out next year from Liv Wright Norton. Um Uh-oh. yeah <laughs> yes. So uh, you know, that that explains the entire process of how Reconstruction wound down and how the Republican Party goes from being the party of big government, from being the party of, of black rights and democracy to the party of big business. So by the time you get to the New Deal era, the Republican Party is this right wing conservative pro-business corporate party. By the time you come to the civil rights movement and they oppose the New Deal, you're right. I mean, the, the, the whole agenda is, in fact, they call the New Deal socialism. Anything that comes across as socialism and communism, they use the Cold War to demonize any government intervention in the economy or any attempt by government to regulate the economy. And so by the time you come to the civil rights movement, the parties literally flip roles with the Democratic Party becoming more identified with civil rights and the Republican Party, in fact, having its base then in the South. Where Lincoln did not get a single electoral vote, right? So this is the great flip, the great realignment that bad faith Republicans today still try to say, "Oh, we're the party of Lincoln, right?" I'm uh, like, "You are the party of Lincoln, you know the way um, God, the way I'm blonde and blue-eyed." So it's it's really uh, you know it's it's that long story, and what's happened now with the right is it, with the Republican Party is that they are now the distilled party of reaction on all issues, whether it's economic, whether it's racial liberalism, whether it's women's rights, all kinds of positions, you know, that they're against, whether it's gay rights, they want to take us back, as I said, to the Middle Ages, um, and they don't like democracy. So they're like pre-enlightenment, you know, they want, you have all these Republicans running around saying. Why should people who are 18 vote, right? That's a My constitutional goodness. amendment My out goodness. of the Vietnam they- War. They want to take that back. Or saying, why should women have the uh, have any control over themselves or their bodies? They should become handmaidens the way Amy Comey Barrett aspires to be, right? So it's really, I think, important for us to understand that the Republican Party has gone so far right, has gone so far reactionary, uh, that it is even against our founding moment. They're against the Enlightenment. They're against the separation of church and state. You have these right-wing Catholic judges on the Supreme Court who don't even have the founder's vision of the place of religion in politics. You know, they're back to Holy War situations, you know, the Crusades. It's shocking to me that they are given any countenance as americans leave alone as american patriots because it really goes against you know we from the left for so long criticized the anti-democratic features of our constitutional systems and we have talked about you know changes i myself have called for a third reconstruction of american democracy to widen voting rights to get rid of the electoral college to make our, our elections and our democracy function better but these people want to go back even before the constitutional comeback. Maybe that's why they're calling for a new constitutional convention, because they would like to make Christianity the official established state religion of the United States, which would give the founders nightmares. Right. Because they, that's one of their big, you know, whatever bad things the founders did or did not do. They were very clear that unlike Europe, they did not want the United States to be involved in religious wars, like the 100 years wars and the 30 years wars that devastated the European countryside. Uh, these people want to go back there. So, you know, frankly, I, I don't have anything to say to them, except that if they're not fond of this constitutional order, maybe they should find another one.
0: Right. Well, I mean it does <laughs> look like they're trying their best to do so. Right. <laughs> You know, I I, I do want to, I want to ask you, I guess, one more question. And I'm very excited to hear about that book in reference really to the John Roberts court. And I was talking to Dr. Richard Wolf about this. He states that Mm -hmm. it's the most pro-business court of our lifetime, really of recent memory, Mm -hmm. even going back to something Mm -hmm. like the Lochner era. And you said it so perfectly (laughs) that the Republican Party is essentially the distillate of the party of just Mm -hmm. reaction. And given that it's been this 50-year run against things like gay rights, regulation of the environment, Mm anti-war messaging, and in particular when it comes to women's rights, the founding Mm -hmm. of the Roe v. Wade decision is this understanding that there's a right to privacy inherent in the Constitution in the first, mm-hmm. the fourth, the fifth, the ninth, and the fourteenth amendments. And they mm-hmm. referenced that in their opinion to overturn Roe. And to uphold the Mississippi abortion ban was six three with Roberts voting mm-hmm. for, but to overturn Roe v. Wade was a five four decision. Just like Sotomayor stated, the court has always hated that ruling. And now that they have the majority to overturn it, they did just that. That's as simple as it was. And we knew that throughout the confirmation hearings of Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, that no matter really what they said, even people like Alito, no matter really what they said, they were looking to overturn Roe v. Wade. That was very clear. They are all Federalist Society members, which is this very fringe reactionary uh, judicial group. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to me to see their reaction finally being able to achieve what they want. And from what we can tell in votes like Kansas in a very, what we would call a deep red state, even though they have a democratic governor, and and that's due to a lot of the corruption in their own political system and and the fact there was a three-way governor. Mm in kansas just like dr wolf noted this is a state that voted for donald trump over some 20 some odd points 30 some odd points and now they've voted 18 points in favor of maintaining their constitutional right under the state constitution to abortion to the ability to maintain control over one's body not even necessarily for the sake of that right but when you put on the ballot where you can allow the state legislature to determine what you can do with your body or you can keep your current mm-hmm. rights. People choose to keep their current rights. So, I, yes, absolutely. I, yeah. And so, I'm curious, given their reactionary nature, especially with Dr. Ewing, I want to get in on this because I read a book a few years ago by Ned and Constance Sublette, which is the American Slave Coast. And it goes into detail chapter after chapter of how the womb when it comes to slavery is considered capital, is considered Mm -hmm. an ability to be able to expand slavery, to be able to borrow against and to Mm -hmm. expand the plantation economy. What corollaries do you see? to the capitalization of the womb and also now this republican somewhat corporate push against women's rights and their success in being able to overturn Roe v. Wade the similarities between those two is something I was really interested in interrogating what is your analysis on that
1: Yeah so you know you're right that the right to privacy is something that actually comes from the 14th amendment which established equal protection under the law for everyone, regardless of race or previous condition of servitude. And this equal protection of the law, the the writers of the 14th Amendment, the Republicans, the radicals and moderates who wrote the 14th Amendment, people like um, John Bingham, who was a moderate Republican, actually, and who, who came up with the term Bill of Rights. You know, before that, the first 10 amendments weren't even known as the Bill of Rights, and he wanted to nationalize the Bill of Rights. He made it clear that they were purposely using expansive, egalitarian language in order that rights may be extended to groups that are not even imagined by the framers of the 14th Amendment. And that's why the 14th Amendment became so important. To expand women's rights, right, to privacy, to expand equality before the law, regardless of sex, to expand gay rights and to establish gay marriage. All these rights that people like Alito and Thomas want to undo, Clarence Thomas, whose wife is busily plotting against the United States government, right? These are the rights that come from the 14th Amendment. And I think it's very important for us to remember that. Now, somebody like Roberts is is interesting. You know, he is very mainstream uh, Republican in the sense that he's happy to whittle away voting rights as he did in Shelby versus Vogue Holder. He is happy to give corporate uh, corporations and big money the status of free speech, which he did in Citizens United, Um, you know, and, and we know that, you know, the 14th Amendment itself was misused to protect the rights of corporations in the Lochner era, in the early 20th century. But this notion of rights of corporations superseding the rights of citizens is, is there. There is a precedent, and judicial precedent going back to the Gilded Age, going back to the turn of the century, of the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. And Roberts is interesting because he's very much cut from that kind of conservatism but he draws the line on certain things clearly. He draws the line on overthrowing elections. It seems he draws the line on on Roe v. Wade on women's rights because he thinks that's established precedent, both with Roe and subsequent Supreme Court decisions on Roe. He he does so. He, he drew the line on Obamacare on certain aspects of Obamacare. So he is somewhat of an old fashioned conservative, uh, which is bad enough compared to the complete right wing whack jobs uh, like Alito and Thomas, who were not even rated qualified to be appointed Supreme Court justices. Uh, or even somebody like Amy Coney Barrett, who belongs to this right-wing, strange religious cult that is based on misogyny. And misogyny is an important part of the conservative agenda. It was an important part, as you mentioned, of slaveholders' agenda. They opposed both abolition and the women's rights movement of the 19th century. They saw them as linked. And indeed, slaveholders wanted, because they defined human beings as property in their slave laws, they wanted control over the reproductive abilities of enslaved women because that was capital to them. Enslaved people provided both labor and capital for slaveholders. They were valuable capital for them. I mean, think about it. Four million slaves valued at $3 billion on the eve of the Civil War. God knows what their current evaluation would be just in terms of money. There's a great book on this, on linking control over enslaved women's reproductive abilities to the growth of capitalism, especially slave labor-based capitalism. It's Jennifer Morgan's new book, Reckoning with Slavery. You know, historians of slavery have, have known this and have now developed ways of looking at this. So, You know, the the Dobbs decision affects all women badly. And maybe there are some white women in Kansas who voted for Trump, who finally woke up to this. I would say it also generates new voters. We know ever since Dobbs that women have outpaced men in registering to vote. We have always talked about the gender gap in voting, and it's going to only grow. With this, with the Dobbs decision. Right. And, you know, if you think of also Thomas, what Thomas said in his concurring opinion, he says, okay, this opens the way for us then to get rid of all these other Supreme Court decisions, including decisions on contraception. And decisions on gay marriage. Um, it's interesting that he didn't mention interracial marriage. I think that hits too close to home for him. But you know, um, it's 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 clear that they have this concerted right wing agenda, which might even be to the right of the federalist society, which is hard again to imagine. So it's 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 really important that we see how this monster, this completely right wing authoritarian monster, has been birthed by. old-fashioned conservatism. And it would be interesting for me to see when Roberts chooses to vote with the right-wing majority in the Supreme Court, which will, he knows, completely delegitimize the Supreme Court if it hasn't done so already, or when he will choose to vote with the minority, the liberal minority. But at this point, I think the Supreme Court itself seems to be the majority, at least, seems to be at war with American democracy. And when they tried to do that last time during the New Deal era, FDR said he would send them packing and we will need a strong response if they continue down this path.
0: Yeah, we really do, because the Supreme Court is one of the most, if not the most anti-democratic institution in the American federal government. There is no way to directly elect them or even hold them accountable directly by the public in any way. The only way that that can be done is through impeachment by the Senate or at the very least expansion of the court or, as I've advocated, shrinking of the court <laughs> by four justices yeah. mm-hmm. by the Congress or limiting of its jurisdiction. But, you know, the, the problem in all of this is that the court has determined that it has the right in Marbury versus Madison to determine what's constitutional and Within the Constitution inherent, the Congress has the power to limit the court's jurisdiction and determine its size. And depending on the Congress's actions, the Supreme Court could simply say that it's unconstitutional regardless of its constitutionality, clearly what it reads. And then there's a legitimacy, I mean, of course, there's already a legitimacy crisis within the court. But then there's a, a, a real constitutional crisis there of two branches of government that are in contradiction, that are in conflict with one another that are seemingly unable to to come to an agreement. I really do appreciate your time, Dr. Sinha. I am really I'm really excited to to hear more about your project going forward. I'm very happy to to have spoken with you. I, it's always great talking with you. I really enjoyed your books. I enjoy and look forward to reading your next one. Gave us a little bit of a preview, but if you'd like to say a little bit more about it, I'm totally open to hearing about it <laughs> if you'd like to talk <laughs> more about it now. Um, but it was an absolute pleasure to have yeah. you on.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, yes, yeah, so this uh, new book on reconstruction pays as much attention to the attacks on Reconstruction, and it's unwinding uh, as it does to Reconstruction itself, because I, I think we can see today how hard fought for rights can be easily lost. So uh, I look at the period from 1877 when the last Reconstruction governments fell in the South to the rise of Jim Crow and Black disfranchisement, legal disfranchisement in the South right up to nineteen hundred. So it's a little different from most books on, on on Reconstruction because it connects this later period to the history of Reconstruction, but it also connects it to fights over women's rights, women's suffrage, and the conquest of the West and the dispossession of plains Indians and how that led to the rise of American Empire, that is formal empire, overseas empire. So Yes, um, you know, that's what the book is about. And I hope it'll be useful, not just to students of American history, but for ordinary American citizens today who are worried about the state of our democracy.
0: Absolutely. And of course, this is Dr. Manisha Sinha. She is UConn Draper Chair of American History, author of many books. I look forward to reading your next one. It was so awesome having you on.
1: Thank you.